Kyle, let's kick it off this way. Uh, I was the one that talked a lot about this in one of my sermons. Um, just share a little bit why Corinthians mattered to us this summer, specifically like in the context 2021, where we've come from, what's been going on, and just kind of why we thought we were in a Corinthian moment. Yeah, I think um, for me, practically, we were talking about it, and it was just uh, it was a letter I had been reading through a lot. Beginning of this year, I guess uh, I had I'd gone through it in, in Second Corinthians and just found it, you know, pertinent and helpful. Uh, I think for me, uh, one of the big things that made me want to every year when we sit down to talk about planning a, a, a series and what we're going to talk about and why we want to talk about that, um, it comes from a lot of different places. Uh, but First Corinthians, it just covers like this whole breadth. Of issues like and, and I, what I like about first Corinthians is that it allows you to see the church in a pretty fragile state and in a very honest place uh, and I think we're in kind of that moment where it's like the church is, is in a, a hard place uh, and the church is, is having to kind of reorient itself and, and rethink things and, and try to like get its bearings after what has been like an unprecedented season uh, and whether and I don't just mean that individually I mean the big C church Across our country and around the world, people are having to, to rethink things. Like, how are we going to approach this? How are we going to do this? A very real sort of crisis unfolding. Uh, and Corinthians is the same thing. It's like there's, there's a crisis that's unfolding. There's a division in the church. Uh, and we see the same crisis unfolding in our country. Like, there's, there's a, a deep sort of division. And the church tends to be characterized by that same division. We just kind of, like, take all of our cues from our culture most of the time. And so because everybody's divided and angry with one another, the church chooses to, to split into the same tribes, the same teams and camps, because uh, it's just easy that way. If you're theologically conservative, then I guess you'll just be a political conservative. And if you're theologically liberal, then I guess you'll just be a political progressive. And it's just like, it, it's silly. Uh, and the church cannot be marked by that same sort of division. We can't be marked by the same sort of tribalism. Uh, and, and the church at Corinth was marked by that. Uh, they had begun to be marked by all of these things. There were deep divisions. And, so we thought it was really pertinent. You touched on this, but let's put a finer uh, point on it. One of the questions we got sent into us was, why do we care what Paul has to say about the church, this person 2,000 years ago? And in that, I guess we could argue or, or discuss, we joked a lot about the spicy passages, the, ooh, you got to preach that one today. Um, and so there, there are some difficulties with what Paul is saying in Corinthians to our modern mind and intellect. Um, so maybe expand a little bit on why we care about what. And that's a bigger question for us at Mosaic, like why we care about Scripture and what it has to say and how we understand it. Yeah, I think that's, an, that's actually a, a good question. Um, even, even with that sort of inherent skeptical sort of tone, like why do we care? I think that's the thing we, we do have to wrestle with. It's like, what gives Paul authority to speak into a situation that is completely different from his own in so many different ways? Like, how, how exactly is, is he going to be able to speak to this? Surely, if Paul ha had lived for thousands of years and were among us, he would have changed, like, uh, according to his particular... And we saw that, right? Like, obviously, uh, in his ministry, if you listen to the way he talks in Athens, uh, in Acts 17, it is very different from the way he talks in, in Corinth in this letter that he's writing. It's like, it sounds different. Why is he, if Paul is the sort of person who's willing to, to kind of not bend in the negative sense, but he's willing to kind of bear with people and recognize like context is important. And 
and, and sometimes one context requires this application and one context requires another. Uh, and each of these different ancient city-states were completely different from one another. So you speak differently to them. Yet there is this unity uh, in, in what Paul is saying. Uh, across all of these letters, you can see uh, a very similar sort of uh, approach. Uh, and you can see that Paul, he like sticks to, to his convictions in so many different ways. And sometimes that, that takes different forms. And we have to, to be responsible with that, wise with that. Uh, but Paul is important, I think, especially because like we always need to be, if the church chooses to always kind of like distance itself, well, that's 2,000 years ago, and Paul is, is so different from us. If we distance ourselves from him in like one matter, then it means we have to distance ourselves from so much else. And it, it really serves to kind of anchor us. Uh, it, it serves to, to help us kind of make sense of things. Because otherwise, the church becomes the sort of, uh, the picture of like James gives us of, of the ship that's tossed about by the sea. Uh, like, like we're just constantly kind of waffling on, on one matter or another. Uh, we constantly feel like we have to contextualize. We have to, to change this or kind of like uh, readjust this. And there's certainly things that Paul says that are uncomfortable in our culture. Uh, yet, as different as our cultures are, you see so much similarity. Again, like with division, like you can see that similarity. With the conversation on sexuality, I mean, I think that's the most obvious one. It's very uncomfortable what Paul is doing. Yet, what you realize here is it's like Paul is speaking in, in, in this way that can feel almost heavy-handed. Uh, it can feel almost um, intolerant of, of different people who are born different ways, whatever else. You just kind of go, yeah, but sexuality was a very real issue in Corinth. Paul was addressing what we recognize as like a severe issue within the church. And like we recognize in our time as well, like we do as the church have to still have a sexual ethic. Culture around us has a shifting sexual ethic almost always. It is perpetually changing. Whereas the church has to have something to root itself, to ground itself. Uh, and it doesn't mean we don't value what's happening in our culture or learn from what's happening in our culture, but the church has to find a way to root itself and anchor itself, whether that's in conversations on unity and division or what worship's supposed to look like, uh, how we're supposed to you know, do that together, what we think about sexuality, go down the line. Like we need something to kind of tie us uh, together, and, and Paul really helps do that well. And one of the sub-questions they had on this was how do we gauge like what is supposed to be true about the church today versus like what was specifically true of the church at that point in time. And I think that you, what you're saying is helpful. And the way I have like specifically always thought through that, if this is helpful for you guys, there is a, a narrative and redemptive arc that is happening, Genesis 1 to Revelation, right? Okay, so there's this thing that's happening. You can arrive to certain conclusions and, and elements of um, insight, if you will, by looking at a passage, and that may be relatively true of that passage, it, it, and it, it may be good exegesis, but does it like kind of fit into what's happening in Scripture as a whole? And does it like, is it true to their context? And then does it fit into scripture as a whole? Because that for me is the jump we make from, is Paul talking about something here that is very specific? Uh, take Ephesians, for example, uh, Ephesus, Paul's writing. There's a very specific things going on. I don't know if anybody in here is wearing purple, but like we're okay with that, right? Like we're not going to say like, well, nobody in this room can wear purple. Because we understand like that pulled out doesn't fit into this thing that we see happening in the Gospels that is true, kind of from the beginning to the end. And then, for me personally, 
I look at that and I look at those assumptions and those things and I go, historically speaking, how does that sort of fit into the movement and the direction that the church has gone into? How has the church historically over the last 2,000 years interpreted these passages? And if you'll see, something like slavery, okay? Like that is something that the church didn't do the best on, but there was always a movement towards the abolishment of that. Uh, and then where something with some of these passages in sexuality, over 2,000 years, the church has never really moved orthodox or historically what they hold on that position. And so to me, when I'm wrestling with these things, I'm asking, okay, what is Paul trying to say that, that should impact my everyday life here right now in Birmingham, Alabama? I go, okay, like, let's look at how the church has sort of interpreted this and what the church has said for 2,000 years that has sort of helped them find a better way to follow Jesus. Because that's what we're after. Is how do we become more like Jesus? How do we understand the kingdom being more at hand here and now in the present and being a part of that work? And so there's, a, there's kind of this bigger arc that's happening with Scripture. And as I read a passage and I come to a conclusion from it, does it sort of fit into that of what I understand to be true and what I know about God? And then as that arc kind of moves, like, is that the direction the church has gone? Is that the direction? Because culture is going to change. Things are going to change. And in that, I find that helpful to also give space to say, sometimes scripture is not going to speak specifically to a situation, and that's okay. Like, we do not, I'm going to step on toes here maybe, but I got this question last week. Like, we do not need to defend our position on certain poli like political issues or mask wearing, or vaccinations, by saying, like, this is what God says, is that you should get vaccinated, or you shouldn't get vaccinated. Well, no, because honestly, like, you would have a hard time arguing that from Scripture, and from the history of the church. Like, it just, it's not there, that's not what Scripture's trying to do. Scripture is not making sweeping statements on whether or not you should, or shouldn't get vaccinated. What Scripture is making sweep, sweeping statements on is how do you love and care for your neighbor, and how do you love and care for your family? And how do you prioritize people around you? And, and how do you be a good citizen? These are things. And so then we have a freedom to discuss that and say, I understand being a good citizen by making decision X or making decision Y. Okay, but like those decisions don't always have to be, and we have to be okay with that. Like we have to be comfortable with sort of saying there are these bigger things that scripture calls us to, and then there are these smaller outworkings of that that have to fit into those spaces. And if we can do that, then it creates a space for discourse and dialogue amongst people that might disagree with one another. Because we can say like, hey, listen, we're, we're both trying to follow Jesus we're both agreeing that scripture is pointing us to this idea or this thing, but then like let's, let's figure out like how do we do that in the 21st century, and there's going to be some times where we're just like, yeah, like it, there's not a clear answer here. Like we have to figure this out together and learn to love one another and care for one another because let's go back to vaccinations or, or masks, right? Like there are certain decisions. You could go one way or the other. We'll play as a neutral card as possible. But then if you are going to care for your neighbor and care for your family, then there are certain decisions based off of the previous decisions that you then have to make, right? And scripture is not going to tell you, you have to get a vaccination or you don't. God does not say, everyone get vaccinated or nobody get vaccinated. No, he tells you to love your neighbor and to care for the people around you. And however you want to do that, that you feel is healthiest and safest and best for your family, I think you have room to do that. 
just like, and so I think that's where scripture kind of can play a part in this. And so we do that with sexuality. We do that with political opinions. We do that with how we eat food and drink. And like it, there's ramifications for what we understand scripture is calling us to and allowing us to participate and partake in. Um, if you want to discuss that more, I would love to, but we'll move on and get back to 1 Corinthians a little bit. One of the other questions we got that I thought was helpful is, um, this is a direct question just straight out of Corinthians, uh, it referencing 1 Corinthians 14, and it's asking if we should seek the gift of tongues, or if that is something based off of 1 Corinthians 14 that we do not need to seek in all caps or parentheses. Yeah, yeah. Um, Paul says it outright here, dude, that and it's the only place he does. Uh, so I think you have to take it with kind of like a grain of salt. Uh, and I have known people, I, a very good friend of mine uh, has said for years that it's something he has sought. Um, he doesn't know why he feels drawn to it. He doesn't know why. He's like, it has nothing to do, he's like, I would never practice it in my church, yet I still feel drawn to it. And I think that's a, most of us are like, I can't relate to that. Like, it's just not a gift I know or have experienced, and therefore I'm okay with that. Some people though, are very drawn to it, and obviously in certain traditions in our country, in, in Pentecostal or charismatic traditions, it almost becomes like a litmus test for whether or not you're a real believer, and, uh, and 1 Corinthians is incredibly helpful in that regard. Like it, it serves as like this balance in the midst of all of that conversation, because Paul can say at the same time, seek the charismata, seek the gifts, uh, like, like these ought to be, but when he says seek the gifts, he, he's not limiting that just to, he's not kind of like honing in on only that one thing, like the word itself that he's using, he's trying to get at the idea, like you need to seek all of the gifts, he's talking about the full breadth, and even in, in 1 Corinthians, I think that's really important, anytime Paul is listing anything, he's not trying to be exhaustive, so like when he talks about certain, like a list of gifts or a list of sins, he's not saying this is all the sins you should not do, he's saying things like this. There, there are gifts that he's not listing, like we recognize. There are things that we have seen lived out in the life of the church. For example, like just the idea, we've known people as, as praying people who are deeply gifted. They're the kind of people like, if I'm sick, I want them to pray for me, like because I know they're faithful in prayer. Like we use words like prayer warrior or whatever, right? Like we recognize certain people are just gifted in this sort of way, uh, and, and God speaks through them in that way. Paul doesn't bring that up. He talks about prophecy, he talks about tongues, right? It's like different things. So it's not exhaustive. Uh, and so when he says seek the gifts, like that, we have to keep in mind uh, that, that it, he's not asking us just to, to think about that. And he, he says, I, I wish that all of you were capable of that, right? I, I wish that all of you, as he had that gift, he's like, I, I wish everybody did. I, it, it makes sense. But whatever it means for us to seek that, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking it. I think you have to recognize that anytime you go seeking or something like that, you may find as my friend has experienced, that that doesn't mean you're going to get it, uh, nor does that mean that you're not a legitimate believer. I think that has to be the thing that, that 1 Corinthians makes the clearest, is that it does not delegitimize you as a believer. It doesn't uh, mean your faith is not real uh, because you don't have that particular gift. Uh, and Paul makes tongues a very private sort of thing. Like, he's, he's really clear about that. Tongues is, is an experience that is valuable, and again, he, he can wish and desire that for everyone, and yet simultaneously he's going to be like, in terms of in the church, practically, it's going to be very difficult for you to, to see that, because, and we've had this over the years, we have known people in our church that had this gift, and yet they were very, very wise in being like, but I don't know anybody who interprets, and 
I can't tell you what's happening. I, I don't know what's going on. And so it's like, that's never been a thing that's happened in our church. Uh, so everything that Paul is saying means we have to approach that with the deepest kind of humility and recognize it is a private gift and it is for the, he says it outright, that it is for the edification of the person, for the individual, but the edification of the body is what he values. And that's what, so it's like when he talks about seeking the gifts, I think that's the thing we have to keep in mind. We ought to seek the gifts that edify the whole. And that doesn't mean we neglect uh, this sort of like private, personal, intimate experience uh, with the Holy Spirit. Um, but it means like we kind of like put it in its right place, understand it rightly and with humility, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Oh, Jamie, yes, go. Follow up. I'm curious what the interpretation looks like, just because that's something that is addressed in 1 Corinthians and something that I've never seen before. Like, I've seen speaking in tongues, but I've never seen interpretation. So I'm curious, like, the his what it looked like in that time to maybe help me figure out what it should look like. I'm curious about the interpretation of tongues. Yeah, I think in uh, experiences and contexts that I've been in when I've seen this done well and healthily in my insight would be that it is something that's divine. Like, it, it is, it's a miraculous thing that's happening or taking place, um, whether that be someone in a prayer language or someone, um, this is a setting I've actually been in and watched happen where somebody prayed in a foreign language that they didn't know how to speak. They just started praying in a foreign language, and the, pe the native-speaking people around them were able to understand what they were praying. And that's what we see happen in Acts 1, uh, or not Acts 1, Acts 2. Um, and so, like, you, you get that happening, um, and I've actually seen that and, like, been a part of that situation, and it was, it's miraculous. It's like watching somebody be healed right in front of you. Um, you, you can't explain it. And so I don't know if there's a good explanation for it other than to say that it's divine, it's metaphysical, it's beyond us. It is something about the Lord intervening into creation and doing something that, like, can't be explained any other way. Um, and that's, I think, what the Lord is in the business of doing. And so w that's one of the things that Mosaic that we would affirm is that we believe that God divinely intervenes into the physical in a metaphysical way from time to time and that he speaks and he moves and he does things sometimes that we can't explain. Um, another way I would say that I have seen it worked is this ability to speak to people in a divine way um, that maybe isn't like a word for word, but someone is praying and praying over someone and then someone receives a word that they feel like is a prophetic word that Paul affirms. Um, and so the, it, it may not be such a thing where it's like, hey, this is direct interpretation, but someone is praying, uh, interceding beyond the people and, and before the Lord, and they're doing so in a way that uh, it maybe isn't intelligible to us here, and then someone else receives a word that they believe is for the, the Lord, and, and it's kind of been imparted to them in a divine way, and that's the gift of prophecy, speaking the word of the Lord to a group of people in a way that is like, outside of you, I, I affirm and believe that that happens and that the Lord does that. Um, I've experienced that as the recipient and, and as someone that, like, I can't explain where this thought or this idea came from. It was completely outside of me, and I felt like I was supposed to say it. 
Uh, and so I think that that could be one of the ways. Outside of that, everything else I would give you would just be guessing or conjecture. Kyle could maybe give more clarity to his understanding of it. I mean, you do. You have to differentiate between what's happening in Acts 2 and what Paul is talking about. The, the fancy word is glossolalia. Uh, and the idea is like, it's a heavenly language. It's an angelic language. Uh, and nobody is going to be able to understand it because it's not a, a human language. And that's what Paul is dealing with, hence the need for interpretation. Now, if it's what's happening in, in Acts 2, it's different, and obviously people are going to be able to understand because it's an actual language that people are familiar with. And that does happen, and there are a number of, of incredible like revival movements that have stories of, of that playing out, where someone's speaking a language they don't know and they ought not to know, and yet people are, are, are understanding it. Uh, and what Paul is speaking, like that's, it's almost like to say, Pentecost, that's, that's, that's easy stuff. Like that, that's pretty simplistic. If it happens that way, great. Right? But um, what's happening in, in Corinthians is yet another scenario in which some people uh, are experiencing this gift, and they're using it to elevate themselves. Uh, and so, like, it's becoming kind of like, it's the premier gift. It's like the elite gift, and those who have this have, like, you know, it's like the Midas touch or something. It's just kind of like, man, amazing. This guy is, is, is truly amazing. A charismatic person. Everybody's drawn to him because he's capable of doing this. This girl is incredible like what we see happening in her, like, and that's just what it, they tend to elevate uh, based on, on that particular gift, and Paul wants to put it in its, its sort of right, humble place. He like, and he, again, he celebrates those parts of the body that are the least honorable, if you remember that, that image in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, before he even gets into the discussion practically of, of uh, individual gifts, he begins by saying it's the unhonorable, least recognizable, most hidden sort of invisible parts of the body that are worthy of so much honor. And so it's not that, like, by putting it in its right, pla right place that he's saying that should never happen and it's ridiculous uh, and, and we ought to kind of set it aside. Um, we don't do that. Like, we, we believe it. We've, we've seen it kind of played out. Uh, and interpretation, yeah, I think that's exactly what it looks like. It's very similar to the way Paul was talking about prophecy. It's a word that somebody believes they're receiving from the Lord directly. And the idea is this. This person is saying this. They're giving utterance to what God is saying. They don't understand what it is, yet I'm hearing it and understand it. Uh, not necessarily understanding the an angelic language they're speaking even, but I know what God himself is speaking to us in this moment. And so obviously that is deeply subjective. And I, I think in any given moment, like that could be very confusing for a lot of people. And it has been. It's been a yeah. very confusing experience for most people. They're going, I hear lots of people doing this and nobody knows what's saying, it being said. You know, like it's just kind of, and that's normally because you're in a context where it's like, it's normative, nobody's uncomfortable with it. And so they just kind of let it run free. Uh, but I think it's really important, and that's what Paul is doing. It's like, you've got to ground it somehow. There's got to be this, because it needs to edify the body if it's happening in corporate worship. If it ceases to do that, then it's something you should be doing at home. And I have plenty of friends who pray in tongues, and that's an experience that they do on their own, but they've never brought that into the church because they realize, I can't interpret it, and I don't know someone who does. So. Moving on to the next question, uh, I'll answer this one because it's about when I preached in 1 Corinthians 8. I made a statement that deconstructing shouldn't and doesn't need to lead to abandonment because there is no critique of God that can harm him. And that has asked if I could expound on that. Uh, essentially what I'm saying there is I think that there are things that grieve God's heart. Um, that there are things that would uh, sadden him in the way that we would not choose to faithfully follow him. But there is nothing in the human power that can stop his will or his direction or what he is doing. 
And if you read through the story of Scripture, it is chalked full from the Old Testament and the New Testament of people taking grievance with God and God sort of saying, I don't really care. I love you enough that I will still intervene and like do good on your behalf. Uh, or, or people that are critics of God, the enemies of God. Uh, we read Jonah at our house all the time still. And so like in the, the, our favorite version of it says, these were enemies of God that were against what he stood for. And yet he longed and desired to be near to them and to pursue them. And he wanted Jonah to go and do it, right? And so I think what I'm saying with that is that uh, both in the enemies of God, it has never stopped God from uh, propelling his mission and his desire to be with humanity. And uh, as regards to his people in the Old Testament and as his church, um, there have been lots of critiques and there have been lots of mistakes and uh, right critiques and unfortunate mistakes. And yet the church has seemed to prevail and to persist for 2,000 years. And God's people have seemed to prevail and persist for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, despite the fact that they've done a lot of terrible things along the way. God's goodness is bigger than the faults and failures of humanity and the people that are trying to interact this into it. So like those critiques and that anger and that frustration towards God, we have psalms where the psalmist is mad at God and is critiquing God, and God is big enough to sort of say, you can say it. He's not in the room, so I'll say this with my son, Jameson. The other day he was mad at me, and he screamed at me, I don't love you. And like, for a split second, I wanted to be really hurt and de like destroyed by that. And I just looked at him, and I said, yeah, you do. And he goes, no, I don't. And I said, yeah, you do. And he goes, ugh. And they just walked away. And then like 30 minutes later, he came up, wrapped his arms around my neck, and he said, I love you, Daddy. And I said, I know you do, buddy. Like, you were just mad. Like, in your little tiny brain couldn't comprehend why I was punishing you. And like, so God, like, I, I would say that's similar to what God's doing with us. When we're really angry and we're like, this is terrible, he's like, it's, it's fine. Like, it's going to be okay. You guys, will, you'll, you'll figure it out. Uh, and I just think that he's so much bigger uh, and sovereign than us that, like, we can go to him with our critiques and he's not going to be bothered by it. And he's not going to be harmed by it. Um, the kingdom will prevail because God's goodness is better than humanity's darkness, which is what we celebrate in the cross. Humanity at its worst nailed Jesus to a cross and God's love was big enough to raise him from the dead. And so, like, there's nothing we can do that will destroy God's goodness and love for his creation and his people. And so that's what I think what I was trying to say by that is that, like, it's okay to question, it's okay to wrestle, it's okay to, like, figure this out and to acknowledge the pain and the suffering and the, and the missteps and misfortunes that we have had and to go, but, like, God's big enough and, like, he's good enough. His goodness will prevail, his promises will prevail, and he will deliver on who he says he is. And sometimes we just kind of have to open hand and trust. It's something Kyle and I talk about a lot and pray with one another that, like, He'll be faithful to complete and to vindicate, like, righteousness. And that's all through scripture. Like, if you're faithfully serving and following him um, and seeking truth, you'll realize you've made a lot of mistakes along the way, too. And, like, the Lord will be faithful to complete that work which he has begun. And I think cosmically that means, like, ultimately the return of Jesus and the redemption of humanity. So um, that was my thoughts on that. We'll go with one more before our final question. 
and this one, um, who knows how long this will take. Uh, but thinking back to 1 Corinthians in an issue of following leaders, how do we determine if we are idolizing instead of simply valuing and respecting the words and teachings of popular theological pastors or writers, thinkers, authors? Yeah. I think that's, that's important, yeah, because, and again, this is yet another similarity. Um, not unique to any culture to, to idolize certain figures, especially uh, any figure who's given spiritual authority. Like we just tend to kind of like recognize there's a, a level of like fear and intimidation that comes with that and this sense of kind of like, oh, well, if that's what they said, then, then I guess that, that is the way it is. Um, I think we do have to, to be cautious though with like why it is we feel like this person has authority. For example, if you're talking about idolizing somebody in the sense of it's a, a pastor on the other side of the country whose podcasts you listen to, uh, whose sermons you listen to, on the other side of the world. I mean, you can do that. We talked about that in that, that first week. We have incredible access to information and to, to sermons and to the experiences of entirely different churches. And, and I think very often, without even knowing a person, we're giving them a certain sort of authority in our lives. Uh, and I think there's a difference in recognizing the value in what somebody says and hearing it as spoken directly to you and having authority in your life, uh, especially when it's contrary to what you know and, and are experiencing, and especially when it means you're withholding that authority from somebody who is in your life. Mm -hmm. I think that's where it becomes really problematic, uh, is that Paul is having this experience where, where people are kind of like deciding on their own, like who they think is the most valuable, who they should give the most authority to in their lives. And it's like, that's a, that's a very tricky sort of game. And that, that tends to be what happens. Like in our culture, the idea would be, well, Kyle and Jonathan are, are great, but they're young. And this guy's been doing it for 30 years. He's on the other side of the country and he doesn't know me, but I'm gonna take what he said and I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow that to be the ground I kind of stand on. Contrary to what they're telling me, that may not be wisdom, but I, that's what I think I need to do, right? And, and you see that happening a lot of times where people, they, they go to churches, uh, and they have, they have community, but nobody has spiritual authority in their lives except the authority they have decided to grant to someone. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, like, that's the thing. That makes it, if you give this person authority in your life, that's an important step to make. But if you're the only one who gets to determine whether or not they have authority in your life, then I think at some point it ceases to be authority. It's no longer authority. It's a choice you've made for yourself, and you're choosing to take what you like from this person. What they say that you value and you think is good, then you'll listen to but if it's a little bit uncomfortable and convicting or painful or requires, you know, some level of life change or you to make a really hard decision, nah, you don't have to, you can leave that alone. I think that's, that's the issue uh, that, that we have to be really cautious about is like how we grant authority, how we understand those sorts of things uh, and taking seriously. And in terms of like warning signs, it's like when it is very clear that God is speaking a thing to you, that other people in your life are speaking that thing to you, and you can see it in scripture, and yet this person who's in authority is the only one seemingly saying the other thing. It's like, and yet still you feel like, well, I guess I have to listen to it. It's like, that, that's silliness. What Paul is giving us is a picture of the church. It's like spiritual, spiritual authority is not only coming from that particular pastor or, or one pastor in your church or even just pastors in general or elders. Like there's a spiritual authority that the community as a whole has. And we ought to kind of like recognize, like your brother and your sister ought mm -hmm. to be able to speak into your life. That's something we ought to value. We ought to take seriously the priesthood of every believer. We teach that over and over again here. We want people to take seriously 
that we're all called and we have this responsibility to be speaking these sometimes hard words to one another. And sometimes there are going to be people who take that and run with it and say terrible things to you. And that will happen in the church. And that's why we have to be cautious about who we give authority to and who we recognize. Like, like authority is a thing that is received, uh, like, like somebody's kind of like speaking into you and you just have to receive it. Sometimes it's a thing that's given as well. It's kind of a both and. Um, it's granted, you might say. Um, but we have to be cautious about that and take seriously like what it is to discern. And Paul talks about that. Like He talks about that as, as being a gift, discerning spirits, like discerning what it is God is really speaking. Like We all have to be seeking that. Like What does it look like for me not just to hear a thing and accept it as real, but to discern spirits? Or like, like the people in that, that, that little area called Berea, if you remember in Acts. Like, these are people who hear what is preached to them, and they go to the scriptures, and they take it seriously. Like they give themselves to actually considering what's just been preached to them. They go to the scriptures, and they discern whether or not it's true, and they decide that they believe it is. And that's how we ought to be approaching things, not just taking something wholesale because that person who's more gifted than I said it. So, Sorry, that was a long answer. No, that's good. And I, I would just say in that, like, this isn't something that the Internet has caused us to, like, have to reckon with, with just theological and Christian ideas. It was just part of, the, like, the societal, like, fracture or fault line that we're experiencing right now is that, like, you can choose to just Google whatever you want to Google and you can follow whatever you want to follow. Uh, and your answers are out there and you can say, well, this, is, this leader, this person said so. And so... That's it. Now I just whole, like, give myself over to that. Um, and there is something about what we're being called into in the church where it's incarnational, it is uh, uh, relational, and we are next to one another. And so I listen to a ton of podcasts, I read a ton of books, and I have been pastored and mentored by those people in ways where that has like, not been able to be available to me. Uh, if you are in your mid to late 30s, there are certain life experiences that Kyle and I cannot offer you as pastors so that, like, what Kyle's saying is that does not mean you do not read those books and listen to those podcasts and receive wisdom and insight from them. But it is to say that, like, historically and in Scripture, we see this thing where a group of people commit themselves to one another, and for whatever reason, because humanity needs it, there is leadership and there is structure in that, and there is a way that you give yourselves to unity by, like, saying, like, we're going to be committed to this thing in this direction that the Lord's called us to. Um, and podcasts can't give you that. Um, uh, books cannot give you that. And so I think that it is important that we find people that we can give ourselves to. And that's not saying just me and Kyle as the pastors, like a community, a people, a church. Like that's the importance of the local church is that there's a way that you can give yourselves to one another um, to, to what the Lord's calling you to. One minute, Kyle. One thing that from all of 1 Corinthians, one point, one idea that you just are going to leave with as we go into the fall that you hope we can hold on to? I'm terrible at this. Kyle, what's your favorite band? I don't know. Uh, what's your favorite movie? I don't know. Um, I think for me, the thing I, and this is every season, so it's kind of unfair. Anytime you ask me about 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 to 14, I think, are pertinent in a way that we'll, we'll never fully grasp because what Paul is, is showing us there, that image of the body, that image of a group of people uh, who are reflecting the reality of who God himself is. Mm -hmm. uh, God is, is community. God is this, this incredible three-in-one reality. If God is Trinity, 
and God has, has experienced this throughout all of eternity. If this is who God is, if God is many and yet he is one, and we are many and yet he's calling us to be one, that's, that's got to be like a deep conviction. And in our moment, like we've got to be a people that's just like, we can have different opinions on stuff. We have to have different opinions on stuff if we don't. The church is not supposed to be monolithic. Paul is not saying that the church is uniform and monolithic and we all agree. Paul is saying the church is diverse and not in spite of, because of its diversity, it's capable of, of experiencing real unity. Yeah. If we don't experience diversity, then unity is meaningless. Like, if we all dress the same, what is it? It doesn't mean anything when we all show up and we go, hey, look, everybody's got on a white shirt today. It means nothing, right? But it's like if we're diverse and yet still unified, then it speaks something powerful of the Spirit's work. And I think the church, like one of the most powerful and miraculous realities the church can experience in our moment is that somehow those people are actually still unified. Everybody else is like at each other's throats, but those people are choosing to love each other and reveal the heart of God. Like that, that, that sort of self-giving, sacrificial love that you see at the heart of God is revealed in them. They're not just talking about it as a theological thing or a hypothetical thing. It's real and concrete in the way that they deal with the, the division and the inevitable tension of, of relationships. So. Yeah, as we move to communion time, I think mine, the last few sermons that I've preached and the ones that Kyle has preached, and just in my life, like as I've interacted with you guys and others, um, the thing that I just can't shake is this idea that like this thing, if resurrection is real, like then my life has to be able to change and like there, there has to be hope and, and there has to be redemption in life and like I have to be able to hold on to that because that's what resurrection tells us. Um, and so I look at people and I sit with people that are going through difficult times in marriages or difficult times with their family or people battling addiction people in sickness like there there has to be hope and I have to believe that deep down that like I'm going to continue to live into the fruit of the spirit that like Jesus's call on my life will continue to be and feel more tangible to me and like that I have to become less anxious I have to become less angry I have to become these things that like I'm struggling with and I'm not saying I will ever conquer all of them but like I just have to believe that if resurrection's real, that like my life can change, my relationships can change, and that there can be redemption and hope and goodness in the world. And like I'm just unwilling to waver off of that uh, the more I think about something like 1 Corinthians. Like if the resurrection is real, then like I'm going to give my whole life to it because like I have to believe the hope and the joy and the peace of the thing is for me and for us together as a people. And if it's not real, then... We're fools for even being here and wasting our time. Um, and th that's what Paul's going to say. And like that dichotomy, though, I don't love those stark kind of either ors. Like that sits with me and I, I think about that a lot. And so I think that's what I'm carrying into the fall. It's just this idea of like what does it look like for us as a people and me as an individual to like just allow the realities and the realness of resurrection to like pervade everything it is that I do and think and how I interact with people and how our family functions and all of that. And so... I hope that that can be real for you guys. And that is why we celebrate uh, communion every Sunday. We celebrate to recognize and to mark that this thing, that it's tangible, it's something we can hold on to, the realities of Christ and his coming and his death and his resurrection is something that is for us to, to participate in and to partake in, to come and to grab a hold of. That's what I love about the physical elements of the bread and the cup is that it, it takes something that is really, it can feel mysterious and out there and go, no, this is a physical thing 
and Christ came and he walked and he was part of us and there was a materiality to this redemption that is offered to us in God and in the kingdom. And so we invite you to come and to take a piece of the bread and the cup. Uh, the band's going to play a song and as they do so, take the elements, go back to your seat, hold on to those elements and we'll take together as a community as we partake in one body and one blood. Amen.